Just stop this. Triumph feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Hello, and welcome to the Mobcast, the podcast dedicated to organizing the criminal organizations of organized criminals. In this episode, you'll hear about a gang that marked the end of an era. Before there was Al Capone, Joaquin Luciano, or even Arnold Rothstein, there were street gangs throughout New York. This is the story about two of the last street gangs who turned the Lower East Side of Manhattan into a war zone, a time when there were brawls of more than a hundred men fighting with axes, cleavers, and hammers in public streets during the middle of the day, and a time that is arguably the golden age of nicknames. Let's get started. The early years of Edward Eastman's life, or as he was more commonly known, Monk Eastman, are not entirely clear. The more widely agreed upon accounts set him as being born in 1875, in a section of Manhattan known as Corlear's Hook. This area was notoriously rowdy at the turn of the 20th century as a result of many different waves of immigrant groups settling in the area. First, it was home to primarily Germans, but over the course of the last 30 years of the 19th century, it saw a massive influx of Italians, Irish, and Eastern European Jews. The immigrants that were moving into this neighborhood were pretty poor, so it was more considered a slum rather than a neighborhood. Monk wasn't one of these immigrants, though. Rather, he was the son of a Civil War veteran, who actually ended up abandoning Monk and his three sisters, leaving Monk to be the provider for the family. He worked at a few odd jobs, such as a pet shop, as a wallpaper hanger, and eventually a chimney sweep. Keep in mind that this is during the influx of immigrants to the Corlears Hook area, which was beginning to stir up some anti-immigrant sentiment, even going so far as to pit second-generation immigrants of the area against the new incoming first generation. And both of these groups were disliked by a faction that considered themselves American nativists. Monk was one of these American nativists, and particularly didn't like the incoming immigrant groups because it made finding gainful employment even more difficult, and he had mouths to feed. This situation naturally pushed Monk more towards the pursuit of illegal sources of income. The exact age he started his life of crime is not exactly clear, but his criminal record tells us that he was first arrested for theft at the age of 23, earning him a three-month stay in the Blackwell Island Penitentiary. During these three months, he became associated with a gang of pimps and thieves that were part of a gang of nativists known as the Allen Street Cadets. The cadets were overall a pretty disorganized group of criminals and served primarily as backup for when any of them got in a street brawl, which was happening pretty frequently. Monk quickly earned the respect of this crowd as he just really loved to fight, regardless of why. This respect came in spite of the fact that he was a pretty goofy-looking guy. He stood five foot six, and he would usually be wearing a very tattered and torn shirt, if he was wearing a shirt at all. 
as well as a derby cap that was much too small for his abnormally large head. All of this was complemented by a mouthful of gold-capped teeth. To add to this bizarre image, he absolutely adored pigeons, and could often be seen walking around, with one or two of them perched on his forearm. His tough reputation eventually earned him a steady job as a bouncer at a popular club, keeping out any immigrants, and stopping fights by just beating up both fighting parties himself. His tough reputation also served to put him in a position that was as close to a leader as a street gang like the Allen Street Cadets could have. The 28-year-old monk capitalized on this position of influence and formed an alliance with another street gang from the area, known as the Short Tells. Well, he didn't so much form an alliance as he did beat their leader to submission and forcefully declare himself in charge. The resulting gang from this merger dealt mostly in the business of pimping, as well as running protection and working as bouncers for the various brothels around Corlear's Hook. They were able to secure a pretty solid flow of revenue from this, and since they had practically no overhead cost, other than the bottles they occasionally broke over people's heads, it was all profit. This cash flow allowed the members of the Eastman Gang, as it had come to be known because of Monk's growing notoriety, to adopt a very flamboyant lifestyle. The members were known to always have a woman on their arms and would usually be wearing expensive top hats for some reason. They also liked to flaunt their wealth by riding around on bicycles, which were apparently a status symbol back then. Monk was especially fond of bicycles, and regardless of his newfound fame and wealth, he still absolutely loved pigeons, going so far as to open up his own bird shop. You see, this was a much different time in New York City, when seeing a group of dandies in fancy top hats riding bicycles with their pet pigeons meant that you were probably going to get beat up, whereas nowadays it just means you're in Williamsburg. The Eastman gang were soon able to diversify their criminal portfolio, becoming the go-to mercenaries for Tammany Hall politicians. Tammany Hall, sometimes called the Society of St. Tammany, was a New York political organization aligned with the Democratic Party, and it was synonymous with corruption. The members of Tammany Hall represented various levels of political office, ranging all the way from mayoral up to congressional. These positions were made possible by Tammany Hall paying gangs around Manhattan, such as the Eastmans, to be political sluggers. Political sluggers was a position that involved forcefully driving people to the polls on election day and then beating the hell out of them if they picked the non-Tammany candidate. This mercenary work led the Eastmans to become involved in rivalries with other local gangs, such as the hilariously named Yakey Yakes and the regularly named Five Points Gang. The Eastmans would fight these groups in massive street brawls, usually warring over territory where they wanted to expand their political slugging business. The Five Points Gang was the most contentious towards the Eastman Gang, and was composed primarily of Irish immigrants, both first and second generation, but soon began to recruit indiscriminately, letting in a lot of Italian immigrants. They were led by Paul Kelly, and had such notable alumni as Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel. The leader, Paul Kelly, was a well-dressed and 
widely regarded as a rather cultured man, as far as street gang leaders go, which made him the antithesis of the old-fashioned thug, Monk Eastman. Throughout the first two decades of the 20th century, these rivaling gangs were constantly at odds, specifically over a rather small strip of territory in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, known as the Bowery. The Bowery served as a sort of neutral, demilitarized zone, with Kelly and the Five Points gang controlling everything west of it, and Monk Eastman and his gang controlling everything to the east. And what was originally a dispute about territory quickly became very personal when the Five Points gang drew first blood, shooting Monk Eastman in the stomach during a shootout in 1901. But Monk survived, leaving him only with a nasty scar and a very personal vendetta towards Paul Kelly and the rest of his gang. While still recovering from this bullet wound, he sent one of his men to kill a five-pointer in retaliation, not even naming one in particular, but rather just giving the order that one of them had to die as retribution and to send a message. This, surprisingly enough, did not serve to ease tensions. By 1903, the feud escalated to full-on warfare. During one incident, Paul Kelly and Johnny Torrio, accompanied by 50 other five-pointers, were in a gun battle with a similarly sized force from Eastman's gang in a very public street during the middle of the day. The police tried to intervene, but ended up having to retreat from the battle, which went on for several hours and left seven men dead in the streets and dozens other wounded. Monk Eastman himself actually ended up getting arrested when the police were finally able to gain control of the situation. Monk only spent a few hours in jail though. A Tammany-controlled judge released him after Monk swore to him that he was innocent, because that was apparently a legitimate legal defense back then. The aftermath of this shootout, which was just one of many, created massive backlash from the general public, who were pretty sick of all of these oddly dressed gang members constantly killing each other in the streets. This backlash resulted in Tammany Hall intervening and forcing a sit-down between Paul Kelly and Monk Eastman, threatening that neither would receive any more political protection if they did not resolve the border dispute. They reached a truce, albeit a half-hearted one and after just two months of peace, the violence started right back up. This time, Tammany stepped in more aggressively and told Monk and Kelly that they would be settling this matter in a bare-knuckle boxing match, with the winner's gang earning claim to the Bowery territory. On the appointed day, hundreds of men from both gangs met at an abandoned house in the Bronx. Monk and Kelly fought each other for over two hours, Kelly showed a clear advantage in the earlier rounds, having been a prize fighter during his teenage years. However, Monk was inhumanly tough, fighting back ferociously in the later rounds. But at the end, neither men were able to knock each other out, and therefore the match was declared a draw. The gang leaders went back to their respective headquarters to declare to their men that they were still at war. At this point, Tammany Hall had to cut its losses and just pick one of the two, ultimately deciding to back the Five Points crew. This meant that the Eastman gang no longer had any legal or political support to protect their criminal activities. It was only a year before Monk was arrested during an attempted robbery 
and beaten unconscious by a policeman, and without the support of Tammany, promising the judge he didn't do it was no longer a viable legal defense, and he ended up being sentenced to 10 years in Sing Sing. The loss of Monk Eastman put the Eastman gang in a pretty precarious situation. However, a 20-year-old Max Zweifach, who was known as Kid Twist, stepped up. Kid Twist was a first-generation Austrian-Jewish immigrant who got his criminal life started when he stole a bicycle five years earlier, which apparently constituted a charge of grand larceny back then. He had originally been a part of the Five Points gang, but came to admire Monk Eastman, so much so that he defected to join the Eastman gang, an extremely dangerous thing to do, as this would paint a very large target on his back, not so much because of the perceived betrayal, as it was just easier for the Five Points gang to recognize him during a brawl or shootout. Kid Twist had become viewed to be a very dangerous man due to his proficiency with a meat cleaver, his weapon of choice during the street brawls. No one opposed his declaration of leadership over the gang, and despite the newfound lack of any legal or political protection when he took control, Kid Twist managed to maintain the Eastman Gang's supremacy in the war zone that was the Lower East Side. He had a group of top men that helped him solidify his power, including his brother, known as Kid Sly Fox, a man named Big Jack Zellig, and Cyclone Louie, who was a former wrestler and sideshow strongman who was famous for twisting iron bars around his arms and neck. The reign of Kid Twist saw the Eastman gang start to move into new rackets, such as forgery, election fraud, and mass extortion. This extortion came in a particularly bizarre form, though. The Eastman gang began distributing Kid Twist's own brand of celery tonic to shopkeepers that were in their territory. The bottles of the drink bore Kid Twist's picture and would be forced into the shops at exorbitant prices. Any owner who refused to carry the celery soda would have to deal with Cyclone Louie, a man who was claimed to have punched a hole through a man's chest. These bottles served multiple purposes, providing a somewhat legitimate form of revenue for the gang, marking the gang's territory, and finally providing a thirst-quenching celery-flavored soda to the masses. The Kid Twist era was short-lived, though, lasting only four years. His downfall came in 1908. Despite being married, Kid Twist was also seeing a dancer who worked out on Coney Island. The dancer was also seeing an Italian gangster who belonged to the Five Points gang, known as Louis the Lump. This romantic rivalry came to a head when Kid Twist and Cyclone Louie got the drop on Louis the Lump inside a Coney Island gin mill. The two men decided to amuse themselves by forcing Louis the Lump at gunpoint to jump out of a second-story window. To add insult to injury, Louis the Lump was soon after told by the dancer that she no longer had any interest in him. A month after this incident, Kid Twist and Cyclone were back in Coney Island to catch the dancer's show. Afterwards, they all went out for drinks at a nearby club. After a pretty wild evening, the two men were walking along an avenue two blocks away from the nightclub. When Louis the Lump jumped out of the darkness, guns blazing, Kid Twist took only one shot to the head, which was more than enough to be fatal. 
Cyclone Louie, on the other hand, took a total of six bullets before he finally collapsed. Which isn't all that surprising. I mean, the man bent iron bars around his fucking neck. The loss of two leaders in a four-year period was hard on the Eastman gang, resulting in members splitting into different factions after the loss of Kid Twist. Only a year later, in 1909, Monk Eastman actually ended up getting released after serving only five years of his 10-year sentence. Though, the Monk Eastman that came out of prison was very different from the Monk Eastman that went in. He had developed a severe opium addiction while in prison and had become very gaunt in appearance, a far cry from the stocky build of his younger years. The terrible-looking monk was shunned by the surviving factions that had splintered off from his gang. None of them wanted him as their leader. He ended up reverting to petty thievery to survive, his astounding fall from grace driving him further into his opium addiction. But in 1917, as the United States entered World War I, Monk Eastman's life took a very unexpected turn. The 42-year-old decided to join the army. During his military physical, the doctor examining him observed all of the knife and bullet scars that covered his body and asked him which wars he had been in, to which Monk replied, a lot of little wars around New York. The reason for Monk joining the army was in part due to Paul Kelly still having a contract out on his head, even after all these years. After Monk was sent to prison in 1905, Paul Kelly no longer had any real competition and essentially controlled all of Manhattan. The Five Points gang swelled to over 2,000 members during this period. And for six years, Kelly reigned unopposed due to the massive size of this army but it would end up being an insurrection of his own lieutenants that would result in his downfall, when Biff Ellison, Razor Riley, and Roughhouse Rogan, longtime members of the Five Points gang, defected to join the Gopher gang and join the ranks of the insane Irishman, Oni Madden, as well as a man named Goo Goo Knox. This truly was the golden age of nicknames. The Gopher Gang turncoats attempted to assassinate Kelly in one of his nightclubs, narrowly escaping with three bullets lodged in his torso. After this, the 35-year-old Kelly decided to retire from his leadership position and keep a low profile, becoming the vice president of the Longshoremen's Union. Despite his departure from the Five Points Gang, however, Kelly never forgot how much he absolutely hated Monk Eastman declaring that the price on Monk's head would stand as long as either of them were living. This timeless hatred and the impending contract on Monk's life apparently outweighed his own fear of going into an actual war at 42 years of age. He had spent more than a decade of his life as a general in the wars on the Lower East Side and was now merely a private headed to fight in the trenches of Europe. He spent several months in combat training before he and his division were thrown into the front lines of France. His experience in street gang warfare seemed to serve him well though. He was repeatedly cited by his superiors for his bravery, and upon his return in 1919, he was honored with an official pardon from the governor, restoring the voting rights he had lost when becoming a convicted felon. But just when Monk thought he was out, they pulled him back in. 
By they, I mean his criminal past. See, he quickly returned to a life of petty crime, eventually partnering up with a corrupt prohibition agent named Jerry Bohan soon after the 18th Amendment was enacted. Monk wouldn't live long enough to get into the business of bootlegging, though. In December of 1920, Bohan and Monk were meeting in a cafe when the conversation became heated. Bohan stormed out, and Monk followed him, cornering him in an alley. Bohan knew Monk was tough, but he also knew about his one weakness, bullets. Bohan drew his pistol on an unarmed Monk, hitting him four times before he dropped. Monk Eastman died at the age of 45 and was buried with full military honors. This episode of the Mobcast was brought to you by Snickers, the candy bar with the highest content of bug carcasses legally allowed by the FDA. I claim that the Mars Corporation can disprove by sending me checks. As always, you can find the other episodes of the Mobcast on the Mobcast subreddit, as well as provide me with any feedback or requests for future episodes. Or if you'd just like to send me an envelope of cash, I'll give you my mailing address. I also accept credit and debit cards, regardless of who they belong to. Thank you for listening to The Mobcast.